Who are those guys? TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour if our luck holds up. And of course, we stay on the good side of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? Doing very, very well To and saying hi back to my favorite Floridians. You know that many Floridians? No, just you two. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're my favorite. Yeah, the two. He knows two. There you go. That's all I need to know. All right. We are so happy today to bring a couple of very esteemed gentlemen who have co-authored a book. Suzanne, you and I get this message from people all the time. Why don't you two write a book? And the first thing I say to them, and we've heard this many times, what makes you think it's so easy for two people with their own personalities and their own tendencies and long accustomed habits to just sit down and write a book together? To collaborate on a book worth reading is a genuine accomplishment. It certainly is, especially these two gentlemen. We have so many questions today about the wonderful book that we finished reading this week. Why don't you do the mad props today and let's let's meet them. I'm ready to rock and roll. This book and it's going to engage your imagination as well as the analytical side of your consciousness. Whoever picks it up is in for a happy challenge as they tackle your symphony of selves, discover and understand more of who we are. The authors are the co-authors, James Fadiman, PhD, and Jordan Gruber, JD. So we've got ourselves a professional academician, and we have ourselves a big-time lawyer who can provide us with multiplicity of perspectives. And that's a phrase that will become operative, as you see, as this interview proceeds. James Fadiman, PhD, a former president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and a professor of psychology, has written textbooks, trade books, and novels. He is one of the foremost researchers in microdosing studies. That's going to come up in the interview. He is the author of The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide and is a co-founder of Sophia University, rooted in transforming the transpersonal. He has been researching healthy multiplicity for more than 20 years and lives with his filmmaker wife in Menlo Park, California. Then we have Jordan Gruber, J.D., Juris Doctor, has forged and sculpted, <laughs> the worst thing you can say is Jordan Gruber, JD, has forged. <laughs> no, we don't mean it like that. <laughs> he has put together, crafted, and sculpted authoritative volumes in forensic law, financial services, and self-development. He founded the Enlightenment.com website and has co-authored an authoritative book on rebound exercise, The Bounce. He lives in Menlo Park, California, with his wife and family. And so, Dr. James Fadiman and attorney Jordan Gruber, gentlemen, welcome to Manson Mitchell. We're very happy to be here. Yes, we are very happy to be here. And for the record, the word Ford has two derivations, one of which is to fake and one of which is to create by fire. Oh, yes, exactly. Important to get that out there. <laughs> We're glad to have you gentlemen with us. Thank you. 
One of the things that we were curious about was what Gary was just saying about how two very different people can actually come together and write this book together. What brought you two together to write your symphony of selves? What was, how did you meet or how did you find your common interest in this subject? Um, well, Jordan and I have been friends for a long time, and we actually met at a presentation I gave about selves about 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's been uh, a very, very tenuous connection in that area. And at some point, um, I simply was unable to ever turn this into a serious book. And Jordan um, said, well, we could do it together. And zip, 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 four years later, five years later, here it is. Um, with, with my um, longer interest and Jordan's unbelievably uh, copious scholarship added to it, um, we ended up, both of us have said it was the nicest partnership we probably have ever done with anybody. So there was a harmony that we didn't necessarily think would happen, but did. Well, well, very also, good. C- c- yes, let me Jordan. just say that there's also a sort of a trans-temporal aspect of this. When Jim and I met in 1989, I asked him, you know, be my mentor. He said, who are you? We became friends. Our families became friends. I helped him in another book. And finally, this five-year partnership happened. Looking at the whole big picture, I don't think we would have become friends had we if we hadn't been destined to write this book. It's kind of like the future washing backwards through time. <laughs> I like that. I like Very that. Very nice way of putting it. I did want to ask you, James, and Jordan, please weigh in. But James, your longtime involvement and the depth of your own research into what is known as microdosing, right. it seems to me right off the top of my head, and I've never engaged in that sort of thing. I'm curious about it. I can remember reading the accounts of Alan Watts of all people who back in the mid 60s, I think it was under the auspices of UCLA at a lab they had set up at that university, took LSD when it was not yet illegal. But when we talk about microdosing, LSD, yes, psilocybin being another substance, when we speak of this, I always think that rather than just going on a trip, it gives a person access to their deeper mind to encounter more of who they really are. Or do I have that wrong? I tell you, you have that very right, and that's what, what I now call high-dose psychedelics. Um, microdosing psychedelics is using way, way, way less, like a 20th of one of those doses, and it doesn't have all those remarkable life-changing um, aspects, and it, it's really a different thing, and, it, and it, it seems to just improve general health, and I'm um, sliding away from that question because... Um, that's really a different part. That's a different self, and he rarely comes on programs when we're talking about the book. Very good. Very good. Back to the book. Um, James, when psychology was, was more or less in its infancy, because it's not terribly old, uh, Sigmund Freud had a very strong influence, which seems to have gone unchallenged for a very, very long time. And so what I I wanted you to do was uh, lay out just a a little bit of history of Freud's influence, what his theory was about human psychology, and then the idea of what was before that and what you are talking about now in your book. 
Well, actually, I'm going to let Jordan do this, because what happened is, although I've been um, the psychologist, Jordan's uh, turned up some twists in history that uh, are quite remarkable, and that Freud is on both sides of the equation about cells or not cells. So I'm turning this one over to Jordan. Good enough. Go ahead, Jordan. You've got the floor. Well, you know, the big uh, energy started in Paris in the late 18, uh, mid-1880s with, with the great Charcot, Jean-Martin Charcot. And the thing to realize is people who came to study with him included William James, Alfred Binet, Pierre Genet, and Sigmund Freud. And uh, you, there's no question Charcot had a huge influence on Freud. Freud named his first son for him. And then the question is, where did the idea that multiple selves are real come from? And, and who was open to it and who wasn't? So uh, Charcot was very open to it. And then uh, Pierre Genet and his uncle and, uh, had done some work. And then, then Freud and Joseph Breuer published their paper, Anna O. Uh, and in that paper, they thanked uh, the two Genets, uh, Pierre and his uncle Paul, and Alfred Binet, for the work they had done on just this, on this exact issue. Later on, uh, Genet and Freud had a huge intellectual property dispute and really had a huge falling out. And, um, you know, up until around 1905, everybody sort of knew there were selves. Uh, William James wrote about it extensively in terms of social selves, and in 1905, Pierre Genet himself came over to a big Harvard conference on this subject. But then uh, something happened, which is called the repudiation of the uh, seduction theory by Freud, where he said that all of the shenanigans that were going on in Vienna weren't really going on. And when he changed directions entirely, he got rid of selves, and he got rid of hypnosis, and he got rid of a lot else. And so by 1910, uh, the only mention of selves was in pathological works, and it didn't really show up for a while until uh, the three faces of Eve and then Sybil and that sort of thing. So Freud originally was writing on it and thanking them for doing the work on that and was influenced by Charcot and named his son for him, and then later had a 180-degree turn about how he felt about this. And how he felt about it, as I understand it, was that he said that each person has a single identity. One, you are one person, and that's it. And if there is anything else that's going on in your mind, that is not your single identity. And so with things like, um, like multiple personalities, it was considered a disorder to have a number of personalities, and you really needed to integrate them into a single self. Right, And then um, what you're talking about in your symphony of selves is the, 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 other, the other way of looking at it, and that is that we are made up of a number of selves. Do I have that right? You have it right. And uh, as Jordan was saying, the, the argument before Freud kind of turned and ran the other way was were multiple selves in, in mentally ill people and the people who only saw mentally ill people, obviously, kind of thought that was likely. And the people who saw the general population, like William James, who also taught uh, undergraduates at Harvard, he said, no, everyone has multiple selves. It's not a pathology. It's simply something that's part of the human condition. But when Freud, in a sense, denied all that, 
um, he took a lot of the uh, the kind of uh, emerging psychotherapy world with him. So we're simply returning back to um, what seemed to be the most fruitful and agreed on definitions. Um, and, and in our world, the, the, the demand for a single self was just a wrong turn. It, it, it became an assumption that everybody really thought was true that you are or ought to be a single self. It became, you know, there's a, a long line in Western philosophy about this and a lot of religion, and that just became the de facto assumption. And since then, even the people who have worked with multiple selves, nobody seems to have backed up and said, let's question the assumption to begin with and see what happens. And what we found is that once we question that assumption, so many things became clear and so many things were explained that you know, it, it, it seems to be really not true. When these selves, and ideally, I take it from reading your book, ideally we function best when we integrate ourselves, almost like we're on a stage and everyone plays a role, and if they do so at the appointed hour, we can live a more successful life. But I'm also aware of people with whom I just have common conversation, gentlemen, and they say, when we have that side of ourself, that shadow side, that's popular, that shadow side comes along, or a side that I didn't know existed, it is usually couched in terms of abnormality, that this is something of which one needs to be wary, if not afraid. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, uh, and that's, that, that is one way that it is, ex, ex, not explained, but noticed, that, that even that notion says there are obviously selves, and um, some parts of them, some of yourselves you don't like, and they might even not like you. And we think that is a kind of pathology, and that mental health is when yourselves, like a good family, uh, cooperate, like a good team, support one another, and like a well-managed group, um, people with specific skills get the jobs best suited for them. So that's, that's what we see actually happening. And when you look at yourself that way, all of a sudden a lot of puzzling things about your life, and particularly about other people, become clear. You no longer are demanding consistency, which nobody has. You know, I I told you um, earlier that uh, the the book made a huge difference for me right from the get-go because by page 13, I had settled two issues of my own where I accepted, recognized, and uh, completely acknowledged two of my own selves. And one is whenever there is a, a manual problem, I tell Gary I'm calling on my engineer's mind. I have fixed, fixed so many things by just thinking it through uh, as an engineer would think something through. I have fixed many things around the house, not with the proper tools or the proper materials, but if I put a little shim here or if I stick a little pin there or if I do this or that, I can get something to work that was broken. And, I, and I'll say to Gary, I just had to call on my engineer's mind. But the, <laughs> the thing that was even more important to me was in my dreams because I, I do remember a lot of my dreams 
And one thing that, that has always um, perplexed me is that there seems to be somebody else in my dreams who's an observer. Mm. And you write in your book that there are observers as one of yourselves. And when you said as part of a healthy self, there can be an observer there. When I'm dreaming, there is always somebody there watching that dream who's in the dream. And I don't see who it is, but it's another me, another person who's commenting on what's going on. And so I've had this and it's bothered me. And so when I was reading your symphony of selves, it was like, it's okay if one of yourselves is an observer. And I was glad that you mentioned that in the book. Well, I'm really moved by your story because what happened for you is it's okay now to be who you are. Yes. And um, someone recently said to me, when I read your book, I felt seen. I felt understood. Because we all have these different selves, and if we're all trying to stuff them into one, uh, into one personality, we know it doesn't work. We know it feels uncomfortable. And so, as you noted, even in your dreams, you have access to more than one self. Yes. Yeah. What I notice among many people there, please hold your thought. My, my thought is that it's great to have guys like you around because you provide a good academic, a rigorous basis for self-validation. Understanding, yes, but also self-validation. It's true of myself and so many other people that it doesn't seem real unless somebody else approves. Well, yeah. But, but what's wonderful is imagine that one part of you is the one approving the rest. Oh, that sounds per perfectly healthy to me. I aspire to that kind of thing. I'm a big self-doubter. I could use some more of that. Right. <laughs> you know, so we, part of we... what's interesting here is that the book works on a lot of different levels. Just the title and just chapter one often gets, and the cartoons, often gets people thinking about things they haven't really seen and generating minor epiphanies. And at the same time, you know, it, we have a lot of levels of, it's everything from science and neuroscience to psychology, philosophy, religion, all the way to the back of the book where we have a detailed appendix on dissociation, where we sort of say dissociation is a kind of a mistake as an idea. So you can just dive in at the level of the title, or you can read the fun parts about, you know, novels and literature and movies and comic books, or you can go to the heavy-duty theoretical stuff and all the way to the appendix. It's wherever it's going to most you know, sort of resonate with you. It, the, it is quite complete. And one of the things that you say in the book is that your emphasis is not on the pathology of multiple selves. It's not on the three faces of Eve or Sybil. You're really looking at not what's wrong with multiple selves, but what's right with them. And one of our favorite stories from the book was when you were discussing Herschel Walker. So which one of you is the best one to talk about Herschel Walker? Oh, Jordan. Jordan Jordan did, in discovering yeah. Herschel, it was like, um, you know, like God gave us a little gift to, to keep, you know, to start the book off. Yeah, we were looking for the right chapter two material, and then he'd written this whole book where he almost gets it all right, except he feels sort of obliged to define himself 
in a negative pathological way, and we say, yeah, he did have one self that did a bad thing or two, but that's true of almost everybody. And otherwise, he, you know, won major athletic awards in many different things and dance contests and started his own company. I mean, the guy is a real renaissance man, and he very explicitly talks about how he learned to deal with uh, pain in his knees through accessing a different self and how the part of him that you know, is going to run as a running back, you know, won the, won the Heisman Trophy is not the part you want babysitting your kids when he's doing it for you. It's like he's very clear of self throughout the whole book. And so it was pretty exhilarating for us to read the story. I can well imagine. And what I knew about Herschel Walker was that he's the guy who was knocking people over left and right on his way to the end zone. I did not know about the complexity of his personality. So you really opened my eyes with that story. And we do have time before we take our break at the bottom of the hour. Please tell our listeners more about who Herschel Walker is, who he was athletically, and his own journey. And I usually don't like the use of this journey, that journey, but I don't know a better word that fits Herschel Walker than journey with all that he's been through. Uh so, you know, he was a I'm just I'm just looking at the book right now, but he was a, a track star and a football player. He was a NFL most valuable, valuable player and he won the Heisman Trophy. He was also the fastest man in the world at 100 yards for one day. And um then he uh, achieved an Olympic bronze medal in the bobsled of all things. And then he became a martial arts fighter and at the same time he was winning cooking show contests and dancing contests. He's practically a beast. Let's just his say own that. Company. He's and a beast. A, yeah, he's an amazing guy yeah. with complete focus and uh you know, he had some problems, and they gave him the diagnosis of, of dissociative identity disorder. Um, that was the best they had to deal with him. But when you look at the whole scope and how clear he is about how, you know, it doesn't make him not normal to have selves. And, and actually, you said something before, and we are clear that the healthiest and most successful people on the planet have selves and have integrated them, and most of them are aware of this, at least unconsciously. So it's definitely the building from the bottom up a healthy paradigm rather than, you know, I mean, if, and if you take the word dissociation itself, and maybe we shouldn't bring this up, but if you, the way it's defined now, if you move from any one self to any other self, you have committed an act of mental pathology. While we say that mental health is being in the right mind at the right time, if you're aware that you have selves, you can learn to shift in and out of the ones that are going to be problems instead of being triggered or switched. So it's a very different paradigm, and uh, we hope when Herschel reads the book that he's going to like it. <laughs> we, what we've realized, and it's, it's rather important now in this time of sheltering for many people, that normally you are used to shifting selves by moving literally out of your home to a place of work or literally changing your clothes and um, the whole joke about um, you know now I can work in my pajamas all day uh, most people have found out that doesn't work and they're used to the ease of switching um, I'm remembering um, a very uh, Irving Wallace uh, an author who wrote uh, multi-million dollar sales books um, worked at home but the what he did is he got up in the morning had breakfast he was nice to his wife and his kids and then he would uh, put on a a suit and then he would walk across his yard walk around his swimming pool and walk into his little office 
where he would write during the day, and at the end of the day, he would walk back across, and he would walk back into his home, he would change his clothes, and he would be um, no longer Irving the writer, he was then Irving the husband. And it was clean switching um, very, very successfully. I like that. I, the other story that uh, reminded me of that when you're talking about the switching is there there is this idea of becoming different selves in a linear progression. It, the, if you're a middle-aged person, you know, hopefully you don't think or act or or talk like somebody who's five years old. Right. So that over time, as you mature, and and one of the things that you you say in the book is that um, that a, a new self, a, a, a new self, it gets called into being every time there is a new situation. Mm-hmm. So that you, you know, I I myself when I before kindergarten. You know, I was a baby at home and a toddler at home. And then when I went to kindergarten, I put on my big girl pants and there I was. I was a big, you know, five-year-old girl then. And um, and it's interesting that you don't lop off or lose your past. All of those selves are still available. And one of our favorite stories was the story about the eight men in their 70s who went through a time warp and what the result of that was. So who's the best person to talk about that story? Oh, I think that that's really George, one of Jordan's best discoveries. It was something I, I had in the back of my head, but he tracked it down. And um, I should warn your listeners, this really seems unbelievable. And if it didn't happen... Um, it would never pass the fiction test. So, so Ellen Langer wrote the book Counterclockwise, and I think she won the National Book Award. And it's a great book, generally, for anybody who's aging. And she authors simple solutions to what aren't really complicated problems once you see them. She took uh, eight men who were older and brought them to a YMCA camp and recreated, I think it was the year 1959. So small TVs phonograph players with real records, and she had them um, hang out in, in their younger age and also do things more appropriate to people of that age. They started cooking for each other and hanging out, and by the end of the, I forget how long it was, the few-week period they had on uh, all sorts of tests that they had decided ahead of time, physiological measures of health and wellness, these men were all doing much, much better than anyone expected them to do. So she actually sort of brought them back to a a younger self. And this is a really important point because if you look at the literature, there's a lot of stuff about how selves are split off under uh, torture and pain when people are young and sexual abuse and all that stuff. And that, that's true too, but it's also just as true that, you know, when I fell off a bike and got back on uh, 10 years ago, I rediscovered my bike riding self that was formed when I was five. And I have a hangout in the ocean for hours self that was formed when I was four years old in, in the Atlantic Ocean. We went to the summer, uh, the beach every day of the summer. So we do create positive selves that come over time. It's not just a question of that you're never the same person every moment because you're changing. It's that you really do have kind of, if you think of it in terms of system science, 
there are attractive basins. It's a network of attractive basins, and most of us have a set of different cells that we tend to go in and out of, and we have other cells that we can also call that that seem to exist from our past. And the the part of of the the experiment with this older men is they felt younger, but they also measured younger on almost every physiological indicator. Yes. Uh, it, at the end of that story, um, you say there was, at, at the end of their time together, there was actually an impromptu touch football game, yes. something they probably wouldn't have thought about the first day they got there. No, they were not at their age to do that. <laughs> that. That is a fascinating story. It's creating what had yet to be created. That, absolutely yes. ignored that story. It's very really? hard because it didn't fit the paradigm in psychology books, which it should, you know, it should be in every psychology one textbook because it's so exciting and wonderful. And done with an experimental protocol too, so it's oh, certainly yeah. worthy of examination and with extraordinary results too. Let's go ahead and take our break. We're at the bottom of the hour, and it is our good fortune to be talking with James Fadiman, PhD, and Jordan Gruber, JD. They co-authored a wonderful book called Your Symphony of Selves, Discover and Understand More of Who We Are, more of what they have to say in Your Symphony of Selves on the other side of a short break. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. We all make promises, big and small, tested over time and distance, tried by circumstances and decisions. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I do solemnly swear to bear true faith and allegiance. To help you when you're in need. To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To be considerate and caring Courageous and strong. For better. For worse. In sickness and in health. To love and cherish. To be your loving, faithful friend. Partner. Child. Parent. Neighbor. 
One of our most important commitments is to support our nation's veterans. Learn how you can help a veteran going through a difficult time by visiting maketheconnection.net. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, authors of Your Symphony of Selves, as they join us to discuss the long-overlooked idea of healthy multiple personalities. On Saturday, we play an encore presentation of DJs for a Day, honoring two of our favorite friends from Puget Sound. Bringing you mastery and mystery one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell, and thank you, Bob Dylan. I contain multitudes, seem like the right music for the day. We are here with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber. Uh, gentlemen, one at a time, we'll, uh, we'll go alphabetical here, James. If people would like to connect with you, what is your website, and where can they get the book, and all that good stuff? This is jamesfadiman.com, and how to get the book is um, all the usual places, including the great big Amazon in the sky, <laughs> and our publisher, uh, and in your favorite bookstore, we we hope, but you can't get into your favorite bookstore for many of you, so, uh, but they will they will hand it to you out the out the side door. That's right. Just in case you're worried that you might not get it through the post office. And how about Kindle? <laughs> but um, we do know that the people who've ordered it have gotten it, so okay. uh, we're feeling fine. And our publisher has been um, really remarkably um, on time with everything during the during the shutdown. They never missed a deadline by a single day. Right. So we're we're really so happy uh, to be with Inner Traditions. Excellent. They are very good. Very good. And and uh, we know uh, Manzanita Carpenter, who's a wonderful publicist and really takes care of finding us the best people. Jordan Gruber, how, if people want to connect with you or learn more about your work and what you're doing, where can they find you uh, on the Internet? Uh, at jordangruber.com or at practicalwordsmith.com. And uh, let me just say the book is out in audible format as an audiobook, as a Kindle, and as the paperback. And our dream is that at some point we'll get to put it out again as a hardcover version. So it's, it's available everywhere. You know, look for Symphony of Selves or just Selves and Fadiman and Gruber, and it'll pop up. Excellent. Thank you. Wonderful. Now, Jordan, I'd also I, yes. like to say, you know, kind of to, to thank some odd people here, which is the book has cartoons. And it has cartoons from wonderful people. Um, and the first cartoonist we, t we wrote to was Kathy. And she said, in essence, she said, I get what you're doing. It's really wonderful. Why don't I just give you the cartoon and permission to use it anywhere in any way you want? Mm -hmm. now, we learned later that that's very rare because cartoonists actually make the bulk of their income from uh, reprints and requests, not from the original publication. And, and similarly, we got a wonderful set of graphics of, of David Bowie. There's six of the 29 uh, still shots that Helen Green put in an animated GIF after he died, and we talked with her several times, and she was very generous and, and let us use that. And really, it's a lot of fun to have a James Thurber and a Dilbert and a Kathy and a Loose Parts, and some of the cartoons are just like they obviously get it entirely. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, you know, the book is – 
is definitely a, a scholarly, academic, extremely well-researched book, but it also has cartoons in it, it has stories in it, it has photos in it, it has so many wonderful things in it. It's a great book to research and to go back, and it's organized in such a way that if you have a particular interest on a particular aspect of multiple selves, you can find it easily, like a little encyclopedia. So um, I just wanted to mention it's a, an easy book to get through. Well, thank you. I mean, my background in part is writing legal encyclopedias, so I, I tend to organize things like that, and it is, it is fun. And, and, you know, what you see with all of, I mean, the reason we have so many chapters with so many different types of material is just to show that this isn't a new idea. This idea is everywhere, but it's suppressed everywhere because of this assumption. So we're just trying to show people that wherever you look, if you just kind of think about it, uh, whether it's uh, in Silicon Valley, what's very big right now is called parts coaching. And they like to you know, work with different parts of people because that's very effective. Um, you know, uh, that little example we give about Alcoholics Anonymous is when you go into a meeting and you say, my name is Jordan Gruber and I'm an alcoholic. You bring that part of you that is an alcoholic into the room and you can work with it. So there's, there's just a whole lot in the book, and we're thinking that if we're right and we need to reconstruct psychology from the ground up, basically what we've done is, in some of the later chapters, outlined a research program. There's a lot of people that are going to have to do a lot of thinking to unwind this and get this right. Absolutely. It, it definitely it, it does make you think quite a bit. And with regard to Alcoholics Anonymous, you said that was one of the reasons they're so successful because if one of the other selves says, well, we need to fix the alcoholic, that's not the person that's showing up for the help. If they go to a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist and says, well, you know, um, you know, there's a part of me that likes to drink, that's not the one who's there. That's, but at Alcoholics Anonymous, no. when they say, I'm an alcoholic, that's the self that is showing up. And you said that's why they're so successful in... in uh, helping people. This was research I actually did as a graduate student, um, and I had no idea of selves, but I was looking at what works for alcoholics and what doesn't. And psychotherapy turned out to be the least valuable method that anyone had come up with to help alcoholics. And now I understand why, because the part of you that wakes up sick with a hangover, guilty, and not quite sure what you're even guilty of because you don't remember it. When that one goes to therapy, <clears throat> it has nothing to do with the, the person who drinks and flirts and dances on the table and then passes out. That's a different person. I'm curious to know, James, when you were a graduate student, I mean, to get to that place, you've got a, a definite interest or a set of interests. And if you contemplated being a psychotherapist, I mean, I understand about the research part, but when you looked at the effects of psychotherapy, at that point where you were a graduate student, was it all Freud all the time where you were learning? Was there this decided bias in favor of Freud, who at one time was considered to have pretty much all the answers, therapeutically speaking? Well, there was, there was uh, at that point, there were two schools. One was the, the somewhat Freudian school, and then there was the behaviorist who said there's, there's only behavior, and what you do in therapy is learn new behaviors. So it was a zero insight, uh, zero looking at your past method. 
And I was one of the people who, along with many others, said, this is ridiculous. Um, this is missing a whole lot of what human beings are like. And so humanistic psychology appeared, which said, let's look at all the things that make people wonderful and interesting and meaningful, and let's study those as well. So um, fortunately, in my, um, in my graduate work, I was not caught up. I was a therapist for a while, and I wasn't very good, but I, was, I learned a lot. My clients helped me enormously. Um, so th the notion of cells simply had vanished by then. It was just below the surface, and so people grappled with their inconsistencies, and they had no, you know, it's, it's the wrong tool. There's a, a saying that says, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. That's right. Yeah. But when you, you know, have one of those wonderful kits that you, you know, you see on, that you can buy, which has 82 tools, um, 12 of which you will use over the last 20 years, you really have access to a lot of different aspects of yourself. You are hitting upon my single most favorite quote in the entire book. Oh uh, I read every single page. My most favorite quote is on page 170, and that was the argument that Freud had with Charcot, where oh, yeah. Freud was talking about theory, Charcot was talking about practical application, and they were in this group of people who were arguing back and forth and back and forth, and Charcot got the last word. He said, theory is good, but it doesn't prevent things from existing. And ever since I read that, I've been quoting it almost every day because we're all about the theory. Well, what if we do this or what if we do that or something else? But it does not prevent things from existing. And that, to me, is you can have all kinds of theories about the single self, but it doesn't prevent multiple selves from existing. Exactly. It's clear. And what, what's funny about that story is, is that it was Charcot himself uh, retorting to the student Freud, who who made that comment, and uh, you know, I th I think you're exactly you're exactly right. Is that once you realize that that selves are are real, everything sort of changes in ways that you you don't expect. Yeah, it's, like what? Well, you are kinder to yourself for openers, because the part of when you say, "I can't imagine how I could have done that." Well, you didn't, but the part of you that did may need some extra attention. And also, when you're living with someone, as we all know who do, we, we expect total consistency from our partners. We never get it. And we say, how could you have done that to me? Or why, could you, why did you ever say that? And it allows you to see that your partner has different cells, and sometimes the two selves that you are don't blend very well. And here's where we get to cohesiveness. When you tell your partner something and they don't remember it, you sort of assume they're messing with you or weren't paying attention, but it may really be that the part of them that heard it and knew that is no longer the part of them that is present in the room because they're not as cohesive as they might be. So someone who was fully cohesive might never make these sorts of mistakes, but that's not how people are. I mean, just, I mean, the thing about Freud was he ended up with this three-part theory, right? Id, ego, and superego. But those parts are enormously 
different, different types and different, completely different. And what we're saying is you have different parts, but they're all sort of the same in that they're cells and they, you know, they're up front for a while and they're directing your behavior and how you're interacting with people. And then sort of one kind of changes out and then another one comes in. That's a very different thing than saying you've got these very complex relationships between the id, the ego and the superego. And that leads me to mention, as I often do on this program, when we start talking about psychology, I am a fan of the late, great Albert Ellis. Now, I say that not saying at the same time that he's the be-all and end-all. I think maybe he wouldn't have minded that when he was alive hearing that sort of thing because he was pretty comprehensive in his view of a psychotherapy that he actually invented, and then it, it went on to various iterations that uh, he felt were derivative of his own, even if he embraced them. But with Albert Ellis, what I learned from reading his work is that as far as we can tell, we are atop the animal kingdom for a number of reasons, one of them being that we not only can think, but we can think about our thinking. And mm -hmm. once we acknowledge that reality, if I understand Dr. Ellis, once we acknowledge that basic fact of human nature at this point in evolution, we also can make good use, judicious use, of the fact that we can choose how we interpret the things that happen to us. And I thought, that's terrific. It's like he's a modern stoic, because I may not be able to control the fact that somebody cut me off in traffic or there's a, a bus coming my way with a driver that had a heart attack and this uh, I am doomed if I don't do something in the present moment. These things are going to happen, but I define the quality of my life and my thought process by what I choose to do in the circumstances in which I find myself. That I don't know about you, but that gives me some hope that at least... Once in a while, I can be in the driver's seat, you know? Well, what, what Ellis was saying, again, is that reality trumps theory, and reality trumps go. speculation, and yeah. that it is, it is a wonder of human beings, and it's probably not limited to human beings, is they can think about their thinking. They can observe their own thought processes and evaluate them. Um, so when someone cuts you off in traffic you could have compassion, or you could um, give them the finger, or you could shout a curse at them, or you could kind of ignore the whole thing and drive a little slower. Those are your options, and it really will depend what self you're in and perhaps what, mood, you know, what, what emotional state you were in when you uh, started the drive. Are you, for instance, late for an important appointment? That's, that will elicit a very different uh, experience than that you're on your way to a park to take a walk because you have a lot of leisure. But just yes. being aware that you have different selves kind of ups the ante in terms of self-reflection. Now you kind of can gain a meta perspective and now you can realize that, oh, I mean, this guy cut me off. Am I going to be, you know, the weird me that gets angry and raging, or am I going to be the part of me that actually is really good at letting stuff like that go once I realize it's not important? But if you don't know that you actually literally have distinct selves that you can kind of shift into or not, that you don't have as many options. Right. If you don't know you have more tools, you're going to reach for the hammer. Well, and that's exactly right. And then we're in that Pavlovian box where we're reactive creatures rather than more elegantly thinking creatures. Yeah. 
Yeah, and of course those the dogs, of course, thought they had been training Pavlov because he always <laughs> rang a bell before he gave them food. <laughs> right, and then all of a sudden, hey, what's this? No more food. <laughs> you know, your your book title, your symphony of selves, becomes. Uh, just very obvious that, you know, in a symphony, you have so many different instruments, the oboe and the violin and the bass and the, the timpani and all of the different things. And they're all important in having the symphony, having the music sound beautiful. You need to have every instrument working. And uh, the I think that the challenge or the thing that people are trying to grapple with is if the symphony can actually play by itself or whether there is a conductor. And so in the book, you, you do talk about all of the, the, all of the um, uh, backup, all of the uh, evidence for multiple selves from so many different angles. And yet there were people like um, Hofstetter, who really, Douglas Hofstetter, really struggled with that idea, and he talked about sub-selves, but then he concluded there must be a higher part. Right. Uh, there must be a governing body. So, you know, what is your what is your thinking about that governing body of all the selves? Is there a conductor, or is the symphony playing the music on its own? Well, let's go back a step, because Hofstetter has said it very beautifully, saying, I've looked at all the evidence, but there must be a conductor. There must be. Now, wait a moment. Um, orchestras actually, usually when their conductor dies, they do a performance without a conductor as a tribute to their conductor. And if you've ever been in an ensemble of instruments, um, there isn't a conductor. And if you're in a jazz group, the, the leadership of the, of the musical you know, um, signature passes from person to person. So there's lots of other ways that one can see that the, the kind of um, ideology of there has to be a big one has to give way to the reality that we've seen. See, the, the thing that I think makes our book a lot easier on people is we really don't have a theory. We only have evidence. And for people who feel, as Hofstetter does, there must be a conductor, um, that's, a, that's a theory. We don't find enough evidence to, um, to come down strongly for that theory doesn't mean there couldn't be one and for some people in some people there obviously is and your book is evidence-based which is one of the things i love about it we have just a few minutes left gentlemen i wanted to say someone was kind enough to call in they are listening with rapt attention to this interview and they wanted us to ask if time allowed what do you think about and this is something i've never heard of please educate all of us what about dialectical behavior therapy I know about thesis, antithesis, hopefully leading to synthesis. Is there a, a therapeutic model that you have discovered that works for people on that basis? <laughs> I don't think we're going to do commercials for therapists because what I know, and I've been, a, is that really good therapists are beautiful human beings, and the rapport they have with a client is a fantastically large part of what they do. And their particular theory of how the human mind is put together um, varies enormously. 
so that um, one looks for a therapist that someone who has problems like yours says, this person was fantastic to work with. And usually they don't even say what the theory is. And, and when I was trained in psychotherapy, the rule of thumb was never use a theoretical word, never use jargon with your clients, always speak English. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of different uh, psychotherapeutic schools and teachings. I mean, there's psychosynthesis, there's IFS, there's voice dialogue, there's gestalt. There's a lot of different people who have come to working ourselves in a lot of ways, and we try to list all of those. And in the end, we explain that we sort of part ways with them because most of them, in the end, want to have a single super self that you're, you know, that you want to break through to and reach in your life, and that will be your, your guidestone. And we just say that can happen, maybe, but that's not how it actually works with most people. Do you think this idea that we, uh, you talk about healthy multiple selves? As I, as I said earlier, we're not discussing unhealthy multiple selves, and you know, some of the selves you might not like as well as some of the others. But do you kind of see this as the evolution of what it is to be a human being. Since this was kind of set to one side by Freud and, and uh, his people that said, no, 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 we're only going to go with the one, one identity. And now there's this opening of this, this other way of looking at human beings as having multiple selves. Do you think that that is, it has, gives us an opportunity to kind of um, elevate, you know, expand what it is to be a human being? Well, it does. I mean, the nice thing about um, having friends and, and early readers is you find out what is the effect when people suddenly are allowed to think about themselves in this more comprehensive way. And the feeling is both of relief and eventually of pleasure and of then learning how to um, how to improve the harmony again musical groups when they you know at the beginning of of the orchestra you hear this strange cacophony as everybody's tuning up right and then the each one gets their part in order and then they can work together in harmony so we're the beginning beethoven's ninth we're just seeing yes. the things people's i mean what's wonderful about this book is when you read it, you, you kind of have a lot of ahas, and then things start to change for you. We have a lot of things you can do in the last part of the book, but for many people, they just see, oh, that's the way it is. I hadn't seen it that way. Suddenly, my life makes more sense, and it is a step forward. And yes, therapists, uh, early on, one of the therapists said, oh, I'm now having my clients read your book before they start therapy. So much Excellent. easier and faster. Yeah. I am very grateful for this book and for your efforts. James Fadiman, Jordan Gruber, co-authors of Your Symphony of Selves, Discover and Understand More of Who We Are. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a real pleasure having you on the show today.